Welcome back to Beyond Well with Sheila Hamilton. Every now and then I just bring the doctors in because there's a topic that is so interesting to me. And one of the most fascinating things that I'm watching right now, especially on Instagram, is the number of people who are searching for hashtag self-care, meaning that there's a lot of people trying to figure out how to calm themselves, to take good care of themselves, and to be their best friend. That's kind of how I describe self-care. What? How do you yeah. describe it, Jenna? Uh, well... Oh, okay. <laughs> I actually hate that phrase. You I do. do. Oh, I'm like the I love only, this. I'm this like the only psychologist and only woman in all of Portland, Oregon that hates the concept of self-care. But the reason why I hate the concept of self-care is because of what kind of what you asked how I think it's generally used. I think that term is generally meant to mean I do nice things for myself once in a while. Yeah, you know, right. I I go get a massage or I go and I make sure that I take out time to go to yoga on Wednesday mornings or something like that. And to me, it feels like the exception rather than the rule. And oh. that's why I think it's problematic in, in my mind of things. That's interesting. So you're saying because oftentimes when we're doing a hashtag, we're, we're searching for something that's kind of an exclusion. We're searching for yeah. more information about how do I, what do blah, I do? Blah. What do I do different? Yeah. You know, oh, I'm feeling really down. So how can I do, you know, do something to make me feel better right now. Right. And my way of thinking about it is much more about um, how do you care well for yourself? Just sort of the way that you care well for all the other people and critters that you love. And the other reason I don't like self-care is most of the people I know who have difficulty with self-care feel like they're trying to balance how they're caring for other people, their kids, their spouses, their friends, whatever it is, versus themselves. Right. And somebody's always going to lose in that. Oh, so interesting. So if we're separating out self from care, somebody's going to lose. So rather, when I'm working with clients, I just talk about how do you want to care for the people and critters in your life that you love, and you happen to be one of those people. Oh, that's so good. Do you have any different uh, viewpoint on it, Brian? Yeah. I, I don't know if this is really pushing back. <clears throat> Push back, Brian. Well, maybe. Like, what if, I mean, I hear what you're saying, and uh, there are parts of that that resonate for me in the stuff that I end up talking to clients about, like if the goal of self-care is taking a break so that between all the other times where you're cracking the whip on yourself, mm. you know, like self-critical, demanding, intense, cut all sorts of corners around being kind to yourself. But then I'm going to like take a bath and light some candles. Right. Or right. then I'm going to sit down and enjoy listening to an album while I drink some tea or something like that, whatever that might be. And I think the half-life on that kind of experience is pretty short. Mm -hmm. You know, you enjoy it while you're doing it. And then when you stop, then you're sort of back to business as usual. But I don't think it has to be that way. I think of it a little bit like in a romantic relationship that you, you're in, or, or really, I suppose, with any relationship, you may do kind of highlighted activities like go out on a date or buy flowers or take your kids to ice cream or something like that. But if it's like take your kids to ice cream and then be an overlord the rest of the time, Right. Yeah. Like, yay. I mean, how much are you going to love ice cream? One zinger outdoes 10 good deeds kind of thing. Right. Do you do you see, Brian, though, an opening that if people could begin 
if they're a self-critical person and they're a crack the whip type parent, if they begin carving in moments of self-care, so is that how you're saying? So you that's could what use I'm it? saying is like yeah. if, if it's used really to sort of remind you of a larger reality yeah. or a stance that you want to generally take, but it's highlighted by these practices that remind you of a larger stance towards yourself. I think it's useful. But I guess my problem with that, though, at least how I see it getting kind of executed, is that it's not the normal things. It's My mother used to have this phrase, the Disneyland parent. It's, you know, it's the parent who never shows up for practice, never takes their kids to the dentist. Not, but then, you know, once a year, you, they, they're going to take them to Disneyland and it's this awesome thing. And that's how self-care for most people in in my life and most right. people I hear about, that's how it works. And the problem with that is that you get such this huge rush of, oh, look how good I am at being a parent for the Disneyland parent or look how good I am at being caring for myself that you miss the sort of subtle reinforcers sure. of hey, what is it like when I very consistently every night treat myself in the same way I treat my partner or my dogs and make sure we all get to bed at a reasonable time? Right. And so I think it's much more about how do you kind of take out, you don't have to take out the treats. I mean, I think treats are great. But how do you find the reinforcers in the everyday things you're doing? And I do think this piece about treating yourself, somehow pulling yourself separate from everybody else that you're caring for is pretty problematic for most people. Yeah. So do you do you see, because I get what you're saying, that self-care then becomes more of a, of a stance towards oneself. Right. It's caring than, well for yourself. Right. Yeah. Right. So where would you put, because I, when I usually think of self-care, I don't usually think of, and maybe this is because I'm a guy, I don't think of things like bubble baths. Right. I think of things like have a dinner that isn't just chips and salsa or, or like as busy as my day is, I'm going to take the time to walk my dog and pay attention to him and the squirrels he's chasing and feel the ground under my feet and the air and all of that like be present but I why think is about that going to the gym like why is that not why can't we just say that's the kind of person I want to be that's how I want to care for all of the people in my life and I happen to be a person in my life well I think we can do that but maybe this become I mean this is sort of the funny thing about words is right we can just decide to call that self-care and now it's self-care. Yeah, it, it is interesting though. I, I tend to agree with Jenna that, that it has become, especially for women, not just a target, a hashtag, it's become an aspiration. Exactly. And, and my criticism is it's too often tied to an expensive writing workshop, yeah. an expensive retreat, an expensive massage, an expensive... And, and I kind of agree that if we could begin to integrate ways of caring in very subtle ways, and I'll just give you a few that changed my life, flossing my teeth. Oh my gosh! Yeah. Every <laughs> single day. Yeah. And you know, I was one of those people that I just hated to do it. I was traveling a lot. It was like, and my hygienist said, rather than looking at it as a penalty, think about it as a time just for you to just relax, to enjoy and to clean. I think and we, I was like, oh. I think we 
Absolutely. Switched it completely. Absolutely. It's you know? not this, yeah. I'm going through my life and I'm making sure everybody else's needs are taken care of. Right. And then because I'm doing all of that, now I have to carve out time for self-care. Right. That's the problem with, at least in, in my experience, and I don't generally like to do the gender role thing, but for many women in particular, that is how it gets talked about. It's like, okay, you, you're going to focus most of the time on making sure everybody else's needs are taken care of. And then and also make sure sometimes you stop doing that and now you're starting yeah. to take care of yourself. Uh-huh. Sure. Right. Sure. Yeah. I think we're all sort of barking up the same tree because when I hear the example of flossing, I'm like, that's yeah. the kind of self-care I'm thinking about. It's self-care like when I'm in the shower, I'm going to play some music. Uh-huh. Right. Um, right. And, and, you know, I carve out enough time in the morning to sit down and read something that I don't have to read that isn't a requirement for my job or my to-do list, yeah. but just a little time to myself. I walk my dog, and that's as much for me as it is for him, Yeah, uh, and so on and so forth. And I feel like it's more these smaller moments in my day that set up a, a general stance yeah. of care for myself. And I think both of you have said that most mental health crises could be averted if we move our bodies, if we have someone to talk to, and if we, what was the third? Sleep. Sleep. Yeah. 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 And nourish our bodies too. And nourish. So that's that's the four pillars of true care for everyone in your family, including your dogs and your cats, (laughs) are those four things, right? Absolutely. Yes, exactly. What happens for many people when they begin not being able to pay attention to those things one by one is the overwhelming nature of work, of financial stress, of a sick person in the family. So I want to kind of pivot to how do you maintain that focus on all around good care when things are kind of beginning to fall apart. Yeah. I don't I don't think that most of those things take as much time as people believe they do. Uh-huh. You know, I think for instance, I think some of the benefit of movement can be done in a really short period of time or they can be woven into things like, well, when you park your car at work, park further away. Yeah. And walk to the office instead of taking the elevator, take the stairs. Just I mean weaving that in where it's almost, you know, invisible. I think the other thing is that it's a prioritizing of prevention. It seems like maybe generally speaking, people address the stuff that's causing a problem right now. Yeah. And by then you're sort of behind the eight. But what do they say? Like, you know, once you're thirsty, it's a little too late to drink water to not be dehydrated. Right. Yeah. Right. Right. <laughs> and so it's like prioritizing that I'm inside a body that responds to things like nourishment yeah. and rest and exercise. And these are not luxuries. Yeah. Where it's like, oh, I can't wait for the weekend when I can. I mean, how many people say <laughs> right, that? Right, right. right. Where I like, can exercise again. Right. You're like, right. really? You're going to start on Saturday. Right, right. Yeah. I do. I'm I have so had mean to my future self. I my have... future self is awesome. He's so disciplined. <laughs> and he's so... I have had the experience, however, of being with a partner who was so envious of my, just what I consider, like you say, Janet, yeah. living. Mm-hmm. Going on a walk, mm-hmm. right. making mm-hmm. sure that I t- take time to read, having the ability to kind of relax in my own home, and that there there was a tension between us around that dynamic. Absolutely. Like that can happen. Well, that is so selfish that you're doing that for yourself. <laughs> right. <laughs> Absolutely. What do you, how do you 
cope with that. Yeah. And again, this is why I, I don't think it's semantics to argue about whether the term self-care, is, like what we're talking about. I do think that is a problematic term because what we're doing is, again, now it's how I'm caring for myself versus how I'm caring for that guy. Yeah. And if we talk about it rather as values, which is I want to be a caring person. And right now what I'm doing is the way I'm caring is I'm sitting here and reading my book because this is a caring way for me to, you know, be in relationship with myself. And I will also be caring with you as well. It stops doing this. I have to balance you versus me. It's just all the time. I'm just whenever there is Uh an opportunity Mm -hmm. present, I am going to care for the people and critters around me. Yeah, I, I love that. There are many people who grow up in families where they're actually not cared for, especially in a home with people who are drug addicted as parents or people who are or parents who are mentally ill. How do we begin helping people who haven't had the benefit of a loving, caring childhood learn self-care? And we won't even call it that. We'll just yeah, call yeah. it caring. Okay. I think yeah. I think the first step is if the person has developed those nurturing or caring repertoires for other people or other animals, you can help them start seeing like, how did you know that your dog needed that? Or how did you know to care for your dad in, in that way? And then what you do is you start having them see themselves as another human being that they could care well for. And so things like loving kindness meditation is a very specific practice that Mm -hmm. I will give my clients to help them see themselves as part of this common humanity. And before Mm -hmm. you jump on that, uh, loving kindness meditation, how do if someone's listening and they go, oh, what is that? How do I find it? Yeah. So there are lots of recordings out there to do it. Um, It's also called meta meditation, M-E-T-T-A. It's a very sort of structured practice of meditation meditation where you extend wishes of kindness first to a friend, then to a neutral other, to yourself, and sometimes to a difficult other. Sometimes I don't get that far in the morning, but <laughs> oh, that's awesome. So that's yeah. part of your daily meditation yeah. thing. Yeah, oh. absolutely. Oh, wow. Cool. And then it's much more difficult if you don't have nurturing or caring repertoires towards anybody then we got to sort of start from scratch. But I would say that is much more rare. And more often, too, people will have the repertoires for others, but then beliefs about themselves and their worthiness of that. Exactly. Uh Because what they've learned from others is to care for other people, but what they've learned from others is that they're not worthy or that they shouldn't need it, et cetera. That they Um, aren't even a people somehow. So when you're talking to someone, for instance, who's had physical abuse as a child, they don't possess the idea that they have enough self-worth to exercise or to feed themselves well or to... They're just not even considering themselves as a self the way that they consider other Other people people as as self. self. And so sometimes people will be very resistant to this notion, eye rolling or pulling back or whatever. In my experience, interestingly, if someone can imagine themselves as a younger version of themselves, that softens things up. Like, how do you want to take care of that little boy or that little girl? Absolutely. And sometimes the data are actually what's helpful. Mm -hmm. So a lot of times people who have high self-criticism or feel like this kind of more punishing self is helpful for them, like it's going to make them tougher. I, I can just pull out the data as a scientist and say, well, okay, well, that makes kind of 
logical sense, the data actually show that's completely not the way that it works. Compassion breeds compassion. So wow. the more you right. are practicing kindness and compassion, the more you are going to be that way in the world. Oh, well, and that kind of that kind of harsh self-criticism, not only does the data support it, but if someone can look objectively or fairly at their own experience, their own personal data sort of says like, well, how's that been working for you? (laughs) Right, exactly. Like, I mean, do you think really what the problem is is you just haven't beat yourself up enough? Right, Yeah. exactly. I mean, the irreverence in me sort of rises when I hear that sort of (laughs) thing. (laughs) Exactly. Finally, for people who are suffering from depression, it seems as if self-worth is one of the first things to be impacted. And I don't know if it's the chicken or the egg, but for a person who is already dealing with lack of um, energy, lack of motivation, lack of self-worth, how do you have this conversation with them? Yeah, so if somebody is in a, a pretty deep depression, I'm not talking to them about whether or not it's they're, they're worth it. I'm talking to them about things like what kind of a person do you want to be in this world when there's another creature, human, animal who's suffering? How would you treat, you know, the, the dog that's scared in the cage? How would you treat the child who's so sad on the bed? Why would it be any different than for the you that is suffering. So just treat yourself in the exact same way you would treat any other being that is suffering right now. And we just leave the whole, are you worth it? Um, kind of conversation out because people aren't doing that when they encounter you know the dog on the street right. or the little kid they're not saying well I'm not really sure if you're worth it yeah, or right. not yeah. right. it's just this is this oh, is how I want to be for when, the, except for when people pass a homeless person that uh, happens you all are exactly very true time. no you're exactly yeah, right exactly yeah. very dehumanizing yeah but it, it you must run into some people who actually don't care they don't care for other people they don't care for pets they don't really care. Is there anywhere you can go when they haven't had that experience of humanizing? There isn't a time that pops up in my head where I've encountered that across the board. Well, I was (laughs) going to say I haven't encountered that across the board personally because it's difficult for me to imagine that someone like that is going to come to my office. Oh, right. Um, So those are the ones who probably aren't seeking help, right? I mean, built into coming to a therapist's office, unless someone forces you to, is as much as I have these horrible thoughts that I'm not worth it and I should just sort of roll over and let life happen to me, et cetera, et cetera. There's there's some other message inside of them that says maybe that's not true, because they've come to see a therapist. Is the problem that you are fundamentally not worthy of anything or is the problem that you have all these thoughts and feelings that you are not worthy of anything? Because I'm just a psychologist. I I can't imbue you with worth, Yeah. right? Like, is that what you're coming for? So there's, I mean, I think there's already a seed of maybe this thing in my head is in my head for reasons other than that it's true. Yeah. Oh, it's so good. yeah, Yeah, and... I think very much like Brian said earlier, I personally, in all my years of practice, I've never encountered somebody that I couldn't get at a little bit bit of them caring for another being. Really? And sometimes that other being very, very frequently is not a human. So you start with a pet. You start with even something like caring for nature as a being. Yeah. I've, I've never worked with some a, a child. I've never worked with somebody that I couldn't 
get some sense of, yes, I would want to be somebody who responded in a kind way right. to that Yeah that entity. That's a hopeful place to end. If you have any more questions, um, you can definitely go to our website. There's a chat area there. You can ask questions also on our Facebook page and Instagram, uh, the Beyond Well podcast. And if you support this kind of conversation, you can clink clink here, link here. Or or clink. (laughs) At the Foundation for Excellence in Mental Health Care. 